This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Confidential and part two of our writer's strike agreement coverage here. Earlier this week, we talked about the WGA and the studios had reached a tentative agreement, but at that point, we had not yet seen the contract itself. As promised, film critic writer and WGA member Tom O'Brien is back with me now as we have seen the actual agreement. Welcome back, Tom. Thanks, Christina. I am very happy to be back and very happy about this contract. The WJ sent out the contract to you, members. The strike ended officially yesterday, so everyone's back at work or going back to work. We're waiting for the final vote. As I see it, the contract is looking very good, I must say. We're going to get into some specifics, but in general, what do you think? I think that the negotiating committee was are the heroes here. They managed to with a major support of the members who manned the picket lines, they really held out to the deal that the WGA felt uh, that was needed in order to address these issues now rather than farther down the road. And they've always been very cautious with the, of the members. And when, when I get an email from them, they'll say, hang on, don't believe anyone else. We will give you the right story on this. And when they said that just how good they felt the contract was, I believed them. And when I read all of the details, wow, this is this is really a, a major step forward in labor negotiations uh, in Hollywood, because it now writers are protected in areas where they've been very vulnerable for many years. And without this strike, I'm afraid it would have gone on for years more. There's pay increases, there are pensions, there seems to be improved conditions for in members in all areas, which I know they're particularly proud of. That means screenwriters, variety, comedy, daytime writers. Also, I was listening to one of the negotiators say that what they've really succeeded in is what they're calling this existential moment, opening the doors to several principal things that you're all fighting for. They've really broken down several doors there. And I want to talk to you specifically about the few areas that we've covered most during these 148 days. AI regulations, writers' rooms. But let's start with those streamer transparency and viewer-based residuals, because this was one of the things that the studios in May said, nope, we are not going there. This is not <laughs> happening. To recap, this new landscape that we're in with streamers, residuals used to be something writers used to live on. Uh, shows were syndicated. They'd get more money every time they'd come on again. This is not happening in the streamer Netflix era. So what they've been fighting for is success-based streaming residuals. Bonuses when a show is huge. But in order to do that, you have to know how big the, the shows are. And transparency data is not something they're sharing. And I know lots of people ask me, but we do see the top 10, the Netflix show list. But that's not really the viewership that the writers are asking for, right? No, that's correct. Uh, you know, you really want to have the number of eyeballs uh, that are viewers in there in terms of also percentages of subscribers, what demographics are watching what. We have no idea. And whenever we've asked for that seriously, the streamers have been really clammed up. What happened here? Well, right now, it's it, as you said, Christine, it's a, a success 
based bonus. And how they determine that is that there's the bar to clear would be a release of numbers so that if 20% of a particular streamer's uh, subscribers have put their eyeballs on something in particular, that will qualify for the bonus. Uh, also qualifying uh, would be original series. Yeah, that's the only thing we're talking about. This, this I mean, it's not licensed show. It's not like Suits on Netflix. Today. No, These are no. the original Netflix shows that if 20% of the subscribers are watching the show within 90 days, that means bonus for the writers. That's correct. And there's also a hike in foreign streaming residuals, which is similar to the pact that the Directors Guild uh, had made, uh, you know, when they, they uh, okayed everything back early in the summer. But it's still a major step forward. They're still not sharing their data, the streamers in general. This will be to a small, if I understand correctly, a small particular group of the guild that will take part in the numbers and then they will pay the writers based on that. Yes, but it's the first crack in the door. Yeah. And I think lots of people want those numbers. <laughs> yeah, Press true. and advertisers, and they're really... <laughs> Absolutely. And I don't think this, this issue is going to go away when they sit down on Monday with SAG-AFTRA. This is going to be also something they share. There are several issues here that they don't share, but you're right, this particularly will be one. Let's move on to something that's particular for the writers, and that's the question of the writers' rooms and mini-rooms. Talk about what's happened here. Well, a writer's room, uh, for those unfamiliar with it, is a group of writers, usually uh, several uh, senior writers, maybe three or four senior writers on a series, and then a number of junior writers or staff writers. And these are folks who are newer in the business. The current situation with uh, streaming in particular is that they, the studios are trying to keep the numbers down so that an undue amount of more work is thrown upon fewer people. Many downsides to that. But one in particular is that there's no way to groom new, young, up-and-coming writers. It was really placing a roadblock to nurturing the next generation of writers, the showrunners of the future, let's say, uh, and to be able to get those fresh voices, particularly women and people of color, who've traditionally been not the overwhelming, not the necessary presence in a writer's room that shows really deserve. So all of that is now set. We've got three writer producers on all series. And then depending on the number of episodes, then junior writers are, are allowed in. So if it's something like Abbott Elementary that has 22 episodes, that's a big order. So they'll, mm -hmm. their writer's room would be a little bit larger than something that may only have 13 episodes. And, that, and, and that's fair. One thing that the exception was made, though, uh, for shows that are entirely written by one person. Like Mike White and Taylor, yeah, like yeah. the Yellowstone and things like oh, that. And, yeah. the, and the White Lotus, yeah. I know uh, Taylor Sheridan was particularly vocal in not wanting to bring on and pay extra writers for a show that only he writes. And the well, he writes gets... 10 shows, apparently. <laughs> yes. <laughs> apparently. Well, yeah. well yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no spare time, but he, uh, <laughs> the WGA understood that and carved out an exception for shows like that. Yeah, I understand that the one showrunner writer like a Mike 
white, white lotus provision was something that the WGA was willing to agree to with the studios. Very, very few writers write alone. So this would allow for more negotiations, for protections for what is it, the other 99% of the writers. And one of the big questions for them was the mini rooms. A big issue for writers in this new streaming landscape is that seasons have gotten so much shorter. Writer rooms have gotten smaller and studios have been using something called mini rooms where writers break down and plan a season before production begins um, and then don't get to continue to work when the show is greenlit or in production. So jobs have really shrunk. And according to the new contract, if you work in a so-called mini room, you're entitled to continue to the writer's room when production gets started or greenlit, right? Exactly. That was a very key point because it was depriving people who have put an enormous amount of work in getting a series up on its feet the opportunity to stay with it. So um, that's a major achievement. One additional thing on that that I wanted to mention is that now there's a provision that allows any writer on a show who wants to be a part of the production to observe, to go down to the set. You know, it may sound ridiculous, but there has been an unspoken rule that if you write for a show, you don't go downstairs unless you're the showrunner. You don't see actually how the production works. And if you are going to be nurturing young writers along to become showrunners of the future and people who are going to be creating and getting production up on new shows, uh, they have to learn that. When I was a, a writer back many eons ago, uh, I was never allowed on the set, which I desperately wanted uh, and <laughs> made a vocal pitch to it. But they said no. So as a result, uh, I, I'm writing in blissful ignorance of how uh, production actually worked. And now younger writers will be able to see that and get that firsthand experience that's needed to pursue their careers going forward. Let's talk AI. This was apparently the last thing, a really difficult part of the negotiations the last weekend was to get the wording of this right and to get everyone on board, which also is going to be a big thing for the actors because they're, of course, also want really good regulations concerning their own image and things like that. What the studios wanted to give in May was basically two meetings a year to discuss what was happening in the AI world. They took some big major steps, the writers. Thankfully, now we have provisions in place that deal with the use of AI in the creation of scripts, which never existed before. You know, the, the we'll give you two meetings, you know, the offer was almost laughable on its face. Now it's written into the agreement. And I can understand why it was the last and most contentious thing. This, this is a brave new world we're going to have ahead of us. And very often AI is depicted as being this awful, terrible thing. All it is is a tool that could be used for awful, terrible purposes, but it also can be very useful as well. So right now the guidelines are that AI can't be used in actually writing, say, a script or rewriting a literary property to put into script form. That is not allowed. Now, AI is a positive tool, can be at least, and a writer can choose to use AI as a research tool, which I can see be, being very helpful. But 
according to the provisions now, and I think this is a very good thing, a writer cannot be compelled to use AI. Yeah, the studio can't make them say here. No, you can't say use AI or else you're fired. Can't do that. But the option to choose it if you want to is there. And uh, a company also has the obligation now to tell a writer with any supplemental material that they give you to help fill in the script, whether that material was generated from AI as well, so that they know um, whether there's the reliability, let's say, of the uh, supplemental material that'll help them write their scripts. So, I mean, it's a very big, this is a very big step forward. And this is one that I'm sure the studios wanted to kick down the can, to kick the can down the street, you know, and not deal with now, but it really has to be dealt with now because both the WGA and SAG-AFTRA, this is a huge issue in terms of our utilizing our uh, productivity and the creativity that we bring to the table um, and to relegate it to a computer generator program uh, is, is, is something that can uh, threaten all of our careers. So I'm really happy that this, this got taken care of for the moment. As the technology develops, I'm sure that will supplemental uh, provisions will come three years down the line when this contract is up again. But for now, this is a big, big step forward, Christina. Yeah, basically, you can't undermine a writer's credit today um, and say that it's AI. So people will be paid as people <laughs> right. during they their work. Right? As they deserve. We've talked about it. It feels like this really is quite historic. At least that's what I'm also seeing, you know, the reactions from both press and, of course, from the WJ itself. They've really opened some doors. But is there something that they didn't get that, that you feel that will have to come back in three years? Or As far as my examination of the contract, all the major issues that had to be dealt with got dealt with. There may be issues that will come up in the ensuing three years that will have to be dealt with, which might seem like small things now, so you don't notice them, um, and, but may become a larger issue in the future. And I think those things we have yet to really gauge in terms of the, mm -hmm. the impact. But as of now, boy, this this kind this contract is a seems like a very very solid one with very progressive gains, and it will help make a better, I think, a better product. Uh, going down the line for everyone. Yeah, so you're sure this will be voted through? It feels oh, like. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it feels like it. I mean, writers are a contentious bunch. You know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, finally, we, we're now it's SAG-AFTRA's turn. SAG-AFTRA has been an incredible partner through all this um, for the writers and really shown solidarity and I think helped. But SAG-AFTRA has a few other things. One of the things, for example, is that if the writers were looking for a 5% increase in, in pace, the uh, actors are looking for 11 and that's a pretty big um, jump up. And then there's other issues for them. What do you think? Will this be a contentious battle or will they get this done quickly? I think the I think the producers have now gotten the taste of getting back to work mm -hmm. <laughs> in their mouths. And I think they will want to wrap this up. And the nice thing is that the WGA contract has given SAG-AFTRA a template to work off of. I mean, this may be our most valuable gift to SAG-AFTRA yeah. in addition <laughs> In addition to getting bodies on the picket line. It's always nice they, when someone helps you take the fight in the beginning, right? <laughs> yeah. The actors stepped up to help us, you know, not to mention 
giving us giving the strikers issues extra publicity because of the newsworthiness of having recognizable stars on the picket line uh, right next to the unrecognizable riders. So, I mean, their participation in the WGA uh, getting what they got, it was just absolutely key. And we owe it to them to support them now so that they can get the settlement they deserve as quickly as possible. Tom, thank you again so much. Um, congratulations. It's all so nice that everyone's going back to work now <laughs> for oh. all of us on every side of the entertainment industry, for those covering <laughs> it and for those watching it. And, and thank you so much again. Thanks. And thanks for the opportunity to talk about this to your audience. I'm really, really happy that our journey, which began way back in May with a lot of uncertainty, has ended so happily. So let's celebrate. Thanks, Christina. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) Right.